welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. We're going to continue our series today, Zechariah, A Glorious Future. This last weekend was my grandson Harvey's fifth birthday. Woohoo! Almost ready to send him off to college. Yeah, before you know it. One of the presents he got was a Tyrannosaurus Rex Lego set, which had easily 25,000 pieces in it. And I was voluntold to help him build it. But rather than build it for him, I walked him through the process. You know, a five-year-old, you know, his idea of putting it together is more about taking it apart kind of a thing. So I, I, we opened up the instructions. They all come with instructions. I showed him which part he had to look for. Then I showed him where it went on the piece that he was working on. And so we walked through it. And I patiently insisted that he put the pieces where they belonged, that he took the right piece and put it in the right place before we moved on to the next part. Was I being unreasonable, making him, not letting him put those parts anywhere he wanted, in whichever parts he wanted to put wherever he wanted, and in the order that he wanted to do it? Was I being unreasonable? No, because the result that we were working toward could only be accomplished if we followed the instruction, put the parts together in the way that the instructions said to do it. If we didn't do that, it wasn't going to turn out. Do you think it mattered to me how that Lego set came together? Not even a little bit. I have raised two boys who in their lifetime collected tens of thousands of Legos. So I know how it works. You put it together, and within an hour, it's torn into pieces. That's just the way Legos work. And so it really didn't matter to me how it turned out. It was important to me that he went through the process of putting it together to the point where it was complete and it was the way that it was supposed to look on the package itself. That was, that was what was important to me because I knew what was going to happen. And literally, within less than a minute after the thing was put together, it was falling apart. That's just what Legos do. Zechariah was a prophet sent to the Jews who are in the process of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding their lives in the promised land. They're rebuilding their culture. They're rebuilding their religion. They're rebuilding everything. And today's text is going to be a response to a question they have about the way they are practicing their religion. In the end, it didn't matter to me how that Lego T-Rex turned out. I am certain if I try to find it, I'll find pieces of it all over the kid's house. Do you think it matters to God how our religion turns out? Well, I'm going to tell you yes and no and explain it to you a little bit later on. So we're going to pray, and then we'll get into this and see what the Spirit says to us. Heavenly Father, we do come. And Lord God, we do, we do, Lord, we're going to just acknowledge the reality that you care 
that you care about us, that you care about everything in our lives. And even as we sang today, Lord, you, you know what's going on in our lives. You know the hard things, the, the good things, the joyous things, the sad things, the, the miserable things, the easy things. Lord, you know all of those things. You know our future. You know our past. You know our mistakes. You know our successes. You know all of those things. And yet your love for us never changes. It is the same today as it was thousands of years ago before our ancient ancestors were even created, you knew us, you loved us, and your love for us will never change, and we thank you for that. And as we get into this and we talk about this idea of, of how we respond to you, how we, how we think about you, how we, how we organize our life in relation to you, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to see what you would say to your church, we give this time to you now and thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in chapter 7. And the way books like this are often broken up into sections, the first section of Zechariah was in the first six chapters, and it contained eight visions. Now we're into the second section, and it encompasses chapter 7 and 8. They're really all the same event, but they're long enough to break up into two parts, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, they're in chapter breaks, so we're going to go ahead and use those breaks. But it's a single section, and chapter 7 is going to be begin with a little bit of background. So chapter 7, verse 1. Now, in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev, when the people sent Sherezar from Regamelech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? So Darius is, the, is a king. He is a king in the area of Babylon. So he's a, he's a pagan king. And he was one of the ones that it was involved in them coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and all of that. So he played a role in that. The fourth year of his reign is about 518 B.C., for those of you that really care about those kinds of things. Um, but it happened, and it's, it's a historical fact. You can go back and look for it later. Don't Google it right now, please. So his delegation is sent to, to ask a question, to pray and to ask a question, of the, the priests and the prophets there, um, they come to ask this religious question, and they're probably coming from the area around Bethel. That, that's the, the basic idea. So it sounds like a good thing so far, right? They, this delegation comes, we need to know how, is this, should we keep doing this thing? And, and, and it was an annual time of weeping and fasting. So it was a, it was a, a tradition, Randy alluded to this. It was a tradition that they had, they'd had for probably since the first reason why it happened, so 70, 80 some odd years, they've probably been doing this. The fifth month is probably around August, and the Jews had been were marking, this, this, this time was marking the, the destruction of Jerusalem right? You know, they, they've come back to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding it. They're rebuilding it because it got destroyed. It got destroyed when they were exiled to Babylon. And so, and they, and they date that, that event to August 9th, 587 BC. Now, there's an interesting thing too. The destruction of Jerusalem also coincides the same date as the destruction of the, the first temple and the second temple, August 9th. So when August 9th rolls around, it's a big deal to the Jews. And they still traditionally will commemorate this time. That's what they're asking. Should we commemorate the destruction of the city of Jerusalem? Well, why is that a big deal? Well, because they're rebuilding it. Should we be commemorating the destruction of the temple and the city, you know, while we're rebuilding it? And it makes that's a that's a logical question. If you ask me, it's a very logical question. Should we keep fasting and mourning over something that really is being kind of erased now with the construction of the temple and the city? The, the Lord responds through Zechariah, verse four. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, "Say to all the people of the land and to the priest." 
when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, during these 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me. When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words of the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and, the, and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? He says, you know, it's a rhetorical question. Did you really fast for me? Were you doing that for me? And in the sense here in the rhetorical question is the answer is implied in the question that no, they weren't doing it for themselves, for him. So who were they doing it for? They were doing it for themselves. They were doing it as a, as a spiritual act. They were, they were putting on a spiritual show of fasting and mourning over this, over this event. It had become a ritual lacking in spiritual meaning. They're trying to look spiritual to people, but in reality, it wasn't spiritual. It was just a habit. It was just a ritual. It was something they did. Jesus warned the disciples about this very thing, about the false type of fasting in Matthew 6, 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. I assure to you, I assure, whew, slow down. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you fast, which says something to us, that fasting is an appropriate spiritual discipline. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That means act like you, make yourself look like you normally would look when you're not fasting. So that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You do these spiritual disciplines, all the spiritual disciplines, and someday we'll talk about those more. But the spiritual disciplines, these things that we do, these practices we do so that we can engage with God on an intimate, personal level, these things need to be done the right way that we can't, we can't just go through the motions, act out these spiritual disciplines. They must be real. We need to be doing them for the Lord and not, not for other men, not even for yourself. And when we do these spiritual disciplines, you're not doing it for you. Now, God is so gracious, he'll never let us do anything for him that is, doesn't have some benefit for us. That cannot be our motivation. Our motivation must be him and him alone. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily. That means put your whole heart into it. As to the Lord and not to men, and you could and or to yourself, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. All that we do, everything that we do, we ought to give our whole heart to and, and do it not for what we're going to get out of it, not for what someone else is going to get out of it, but what for the, we do it for the Lord and recognize that God is so gracious that whatever we do for him will be rewarded. We don't do it for that. We don't do it for that motivation either. We just recognize the reality of that. If we do it for him, there is going to be a reward. True fasting and mourning or any of the spiritual disciplines must be an expression of what's in the heart. It has to come out of us as an, as an expression of our relationship with God. Every church has rituals. Every church has some kind of things that it does on a regular basis. They have a pattern. They have a way of doing things. That's their rituals. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with the rituals. For us, communion is something of a ritual. We do it once a month on the second Sunday of the month, and, and we're pretty consistent about hitting that right on the, on the button, which, by the way, just so I say it, we're not using those cups ever again. So please. I wanted to say that out loud so that we all heard it. If we have to throw the old ones away, let's not use those again. Sorry, that was like, mm. 
you know, we, we, we do this thing, this ritual, but we're not very ritualistic about it. You know, that, that, that if some place you go to, they have a, I mean, you have a, a whole rite. I mean, it's all documented and laid out. You have to do it a certain way. A certain person has to do it. And it's like really weird. Did I say weird? Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. But, but communion has deep spiritual meaning. It is a powerful expression of faith. When we do it right, and not just as a church, you, you, as you're engaging in communion, have this opportunity to commune with the living God. And that we ought to take that seriously, and it ought to mean something to us. It's deep spiritual meaning. Yeah, as a church, we're always going to try to be reverent in the way that we, that we engage in that rite of communion. We can't control what's going on inside of you know, people's hearts, but we can, we can control our part of it. We control how we conduct ourselves in that process. The Lord then does something interesting. He challenges them to examine themselves. Verse um, 7 again. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? They're, they're practicing this, this, this fasting and mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, uh, you know, if your ancestors had just obeyed me, that wouldn't have happened. Shouldn't they have done that instead of you, know, of, of you doing this you know, ritual of weeping and fasting? Shouldn't they have obeyed? And there's a sense here that what they're doing is they're substituting this ritual, fasting and mourning, with obedience. Obedience is always better than religious exercises, religious rituals. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of lambs. Remember, keep in mind that the sacrifice that he's referring to here was demanded by God. It was, it was, it was the law that they were to give these sacrifices. But what he's saying is obedience is better than that. If you obey me, that, is, that far exceeds these, these sacrifices, and that's a much longer message. We're not going to get into it today. But God expects his people to obey him. I mean, is that, should that surprise us? Should it surprise us that the God of the universe, who is in control of everything, who created us, who, who has ordained every facet of our lives, should it surprise us that he wants us to obey him? When, when obeying him is the pathway to his goodness. Why would that surprise us? Why would we be surprised when God says, obey me? Shouldn't surprise us. He wants us to obey him every time and in everything because that is the best life that we can live. Any other life is going to be less. It will always be less. If you choose any other life than absolute, total, and complete obedience to God, you're choosing a life that's less. Jeremiah 7, 23. This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Who wants it to be well with you? Walk in his ways. It will be well with you. It seems so simple, right? Why don't we do it? Why doesn't Larry do it? I don't know. <laughs> I speak for myself. Why doesn't Rick do it? They're, they're weeping and fasting as a religious act, and they're coming and saying, should we keep doing this now that we've done this? Should we change our ritual now that the, this rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is going on? Should we change our ritual? And we've got to be careful. As modern 
new covenant believers to be careful that we're not worshiping God like this, looking for the ritual, looking for the, the do's and the don'ts, the rights and the wrongs. You know, we, we just, David just led us in what we refer to as worship or praise and worship, however you want to refer to it. And when we come to it, we could, maybe David will preach a whole message on this someday. You know, how are we doing that? He has actually taught messages on worship. Are we abandoning ourselves to worship? Just, just letting go and worshiping God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we just not holding anything back in our worship? Are we sensing or seeking to sense God's presence in that time? Are we attempting to see ourselves in the very throne room of God? Are we singing the words of these songs as an expression of our love for God? I, I, one of the things, and it really occurred to me is, is there, there, you know, sometimes we sing songs that we don't know, yeah, right? Yeah, or we don't know all the words to. And I was sitting there, and there were a couple of songs. I didn't know all the words to them. And as I was, as I was still singing, I, I caught myself. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not standing up here to boast or brag or anything like that. But recognizing, okay, I, I didn't know that word well enough just to, just to let it come out of me, like many songs do. And so I had to think about the words that I was singing. And the, and the thoughts that occurred to me is, is as I was singing those words, they filled my heart with joy. They, they, they moved my heart because I was thinking about the words. When we are doing things like that, there is a right way to do it. There is a right way to worship. Or we come and we're focused on, you know, how the mu musicians sound, or we're looking back here and saying, where's Larry? You know, where, you know, where, where you know, what, you know, where, we, we still don't have a drummer, you know, and we're, and we're thinking about things like that, or, or we're, we're concerned about, you know, how we sound, or, or we're thinking about how that person behind us sounds, like, Ugh. <laughs> I try not to listen to Laura, but... Uh, I sit over here, and that's what I get. <laughs> Kidding. I love to hear God's people sing. I love that, because I, I know that God loves it. When God's, when God's people are just, just loving him with their voices, he loves that. You know, one of the reasons why we play some of the songs that we play on a regular basis is so that we can learn them to the point where we just allow it to be the outflow of our relationship with God. It just comes out of us. You know, I, I try when I'm sitting up here, even though I'm up in the very front, I sit there on purpose, and I, I try to close my eyes and just let it out. I, I think that's what God wants us to do. To not think about the people around us, to not think about the, 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 these things. Just let our hearts worship the God who loves us. The Lord's questioning them. You know, shouldn't, shouldn't you have just done what I said? Shouldn't you have just worshipped me and obeyed me instead of these religious exercises? And then he goes on here to say, you know, it's not limited to just what we do in the church. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor, let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. One of the ways that you can examine your faith, to examine 
how much you really love God is to examine your relationships with others. Your relationships with others are, are a clear indication of your relationship with God. Jesus summarized this by telling us to love God and our neighbor in 22, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. He says this, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He, Jesus was asked. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You want to summarize the entire Bible? Everything that God has said about how we are to obey him and worship him and all this stuff, he's come, it, he, Jesus boils it down to two things, love God and love others. Now we can then break that down, you know, explode those things out into you know, the, you know, the individual pieces, but it all gets summarized in that. If you, if, you can't, if you can't define what you're doing based on loving God or loving others, then you may not be doing either one of them. It says, showing justice and mercy and compassion are expressions of God's nature. You want to know what God's like? Justice, mercy, and compassion. That's what God is like. And if we're going to be like God, if we're going to worship God in a way that is true and right, it's, it's going to be showing those justice, mercy, and compassion. He also goes on to say, not oppressing those who are vulnerable or those whom you have power over is another expression of God's nature and his character. True worship must involve obedience to God's word in, in absolute conformity to his character. The closer we get to, to reflecting the nature of God in our obedience to him, to his word, is how we worship him. It's not what we do on Sunday mornings. That's a part of it, a small part of it. It's what we do with the rest of our lives that truly manifests the worship of God. And it's got to go out into every part of our lives. You know, there's no part of your life that is excluded from our worship of God. No part. Every part of your life can be an opportunity to worship God. Every breath you take Every breath you take can be an expression of worship to God. Everything you do as a result of every breath that you take can be an expression of worship to God. But for it to be right worship, it must be in obedience to God and reflect his character and nature. If people are doing things out there and they're saying, I'm worshiping God, but they're doing things that God said don't do, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile you, you know, empty, vain religion without, you know, outside of the obedience to God and call it true worship? That's what, that's what God's calling. That's what the prophet Zechariah is calling these people to examine themselves and say, hey, you're doing this fasting and weeping and thing, but it's not, it's not an obedience to me. God didn't command them to do it. Why do I need to command you to stop? God would say to them, if I didn't command you to do it, I don't need to command you to stop. It's interesting as we, as we study, especially these verses here, these verses 8 through 10. The Lord's saying through Zechariah things that the prophets have been saying for centuries, hundreds of years. They've been saying the same things. You know, justice, mercy, compassion. Do not oppress those that are weaker than you, that are more vulnerable than you. But it didn't benefit the ones that heard it. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, why? Why didn't they get it? Anybody ever ask that question of somebody around you? Why doesn't that person sitting next to me get it? Don't look at them. Why don't they get it? I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Don't be, don't be, you know, labeling anybody here, especially based on what I'm going to read next. But the Lord's going to explain why the people that the prophet spoke to didn't respond, why they didn't get it. Verse 11, but 
they refused to heed. This would be the ones that God spoke to the people before the exile. It spoke to them for hundreds of years before the exile. He says, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Why is it that some people seem determined not to believe? Why is it that some, no matter what we say, no matter what we do, they're just not going to believe? Or if they do, it's obvious to everyone around them that it's not real. Why is it? The simple answer is they don't want to. They don't want to. Their independence is more important than God's forgiveness. I don't need to be forgiven. I I can tell you I know that's true because I used to say it. I don't need God. I don't need God's forgiveness. I'm perfectly good the way that I am. (sighs) Ignorant. Or their desire to follow their own way just blinds them to the, to the pathway of God's goodness. God's goodness is so much better than our own way, and yet, you know, their own way, their determination to walk their own path, to be their own person, blinds them to everything else, blinds them to truth. And once they have made that decision, I will not obey. It it can never be, I can't, but it can be, I won't. I won't believe. I won't obey. I won't do what God wants. The moment someone gets to that point, they shrug their shoulder and say, well, whatever. You know, if you don't do that, there's going to be a consequence. Oh, well, okay. Or they, they stick their fingers in their ears. I'm not going to listen. I'm not listening. La, 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 la. <laughs> and they harden their heart. They make, notice it says, they make their hearts like flint. God didn't do it. They make their hearts like flint. They make, the flint is a, a very hard stone. They do that. They make their heart hard, which means that God's, God's gentleness has no effect on them. God's love bounces off. God's commands are rejected. They will not penetrate their heart. And the heart is important. The Bible tells us that we need to keep our heart because out of it flow the issues of life. Everything in your life flows out of your heart. And so if your heart is hard like flint, then what do you think comes out of it? Nothing good. Nothing good. And he says that there's a terrible consequence. If you, if you do this, if you shrug your shoulders, you reject God and you close your ears and you harden your heart, there is a terrible consequence, a consequence that God does not want to bring, a consequence that, that, that it grieves God's heart to even tell us about, let alone bring to pass. But in his justice, he must Because if God doesn't bring the consequence to rebellion, then he cannot be just. Cannot be. He cannot be right. He cannot be good. He cannot be love if he does not bring a consequence for rebellion. Jeremiah 11, 11 says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. This was expressed to the people of Judah and Jerusalem right before the exile. God had warned them for hundreds of years, you must worship me and me alone, otherwise I will kick you out of the land. I drive you out of here if you will not obey me. And what did they do? They, they rejected him. They, 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 they 
hardened their heart. They closed their ears. They shrugged their shoulders, and God said, okay, I've got to do it. And then he warns them and says, okay, just understand, when I do send you out and you cry out to me, oh, no, look what's happening. God, what are you doing? What's God going to do? I will not listen. I can't imagine a greater curse. To imagine that God stops listening. My only hope in this life is that God hears me. If God doesn't hear me, then I have no hope in any way. These men had come to ask about their religion. God says, you must respond to me. You read verses 13 and 14. Therefore it happened just as he proclaimed it, and they would not hear. So he, they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they had made the pleasant land desolate. Who did it? It wasn't God. They did it to themselves. They chose that. They chose to be exiled. They chose for their land to be desolate. And now they're back in the land and they're, and they're trying to recover from that. But God still expects them to obey him. He still expects them to worship him and him alone. Now, thankfully, it doesn't appear that the Jews ever went back to idolatry. They never went back to worshiping false gods. They still didn't obey God completely, still don't to this day. And very often, many of the Jews are caught up in this, this dead religiosity. Not just Jews. There are a lot of so-called Christians out there doing the same things. God had warned them. If you don't do what I'm asking, then I, there, there has to be a consequence. And God was so faithful to warn for hundreds of years. Do you understand that? People lived their entire life in rebellion to God. And then their children followed in their footsteps. And then their children followed in their footsteps. And all along the way, God's warning and warning and warning and warning. And finally, God says, okay, enough's enough. These men had come to ask about their religion. God turned it around and asked them to examine their hearts. True worship is not as much about what we do as what we are, what's inside of us. True worship is about believing, trusting, and obeying God and his word. True worship is about how I express God's love to others, to him and to others. And, you know, we, you might think, maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online and you're, and you're asking the question, why does God need me to worship him? Why, why do I, why must I worship God? What's the big deal? Is God so insecure that he needs me to worship him? I've actually heard that. The simple answer is that you should do it first because you were created to do it. When God made you, he made you with a purpose. And the number one purpose that God made you for, the number one thing, the highest thing God made you for was to worship him. He made you to be a reflection of himself and to reflect his glory back in worship of him. Now, the Bible teaches us that we are not capable of worshiping him as we should because inside of us, there is a nature that is opposed to worshiping God. It just doesn't want to. And, and the most spiritual person the Bible teaches there's a, this battle going on between the flesh and the spirit, and it's an ongoing battle. It begins the moment we get saved, and it will finally end when Jesus comes back to get us. 
Until then, this battle rages within us. Now, sometimes you don't notice it. Sometimes it's, you know, you're, you're tuned into God. You're, you're nailing it 99.9%. But this nature is in us. And God, when we, before we, we became believers, there was no desire to do it. We might, have, we might have been involved. Some, some, I know some people get saved after attending church for decades. You know, what were they doing? They were doing just like these Jews. They were practicing their religion. But it didn't mean anything. And there are people all around, I, I pray there are none of, none of you here are practicing a religion. That, that it's just about going through the rituals. I showed up. I must be okay today. I'm good for a week or a month, however long you think you know, it works. I don't know. This part inside of us that doesn't want to do it, and that's the way that we all were. When, before I got saved, I had no desire to worship God. I had no desire to obey God. I had no desire to love God. I didn't recognize that he loved me. I didn't even care. It just didn't matter to me. And, and God, as an expression of his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion sent his son to make a way for us to be saved, to make a way for us to know him and, and to give us that heart, to take out that heart-like flint, to take it out and replace it with a heart that is tender toward God. And not just toward God, but toward those others around us as well. Jesus came, he sacrificed his life to make a way for us to, to be free from the penalty of our rebellion, from the penalty of us shrugging our shoulders, stopping our ears, making our heart like flint, choosing not to obey God. Whether we, whether we did that as Kelly did it as a, you know, almost infant, or you know, me at 40, or however you get there, whenever you get there, it's the same, the same basic process. You have to move from one place to the next. The only way to do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. When he comes and he sets us free from the penalty of our sin, it, all of the junk that keep, kept us from worshiping God is taken away, or moved out of the way. We still have to deal with our own other stuff. And when I accept his sacrifice, the burden of my sin, the guilt of my sin is taken away. And then I'm promised eternal life. I'm promised life that never ends in a place that, that, that is so great and grand that it defies human description and understanding. At all, just because I chose to believe. Should I not worship the God who loves me so much to pull me out of the darkness and bring me into the light, to save me from eternal condemnation to eternal blessing? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I worship that God? Shouldn't I worship the God who sent his spirit to indwell me, to live the best life possible? Shouldn't I worship that God? And if God is who he says he is, he says there's a right way to do that. And if there's a right way to do that, there's a wrong way to do it too. And as, as, as the Lord was calling these men to examine their hearts, I believe the Spirit would call us all to examine our hearts and, and ask the question, how are you worshiping me? Are you worshiping me in a way that is right and true? And if you don't know, you probably should find out, right? Wouldn't that make sense? You should desire to know. And God in his grace, if we will humble our hearts before him and say, God, I want to worship you. I want to worship you with abandon. I want to worship you in absolute obedience to your word. If you do that, if you open yourself up and you do that, he will speak to you. You know why? Because he wants you to worship him in a way that's right and true. You know, the more I get to know God and what he did for me and what he's doing in me and what he's going to do with me in the future, the more inclined I am to worship him. I just want to more. 
Now, God doesn't need our worship. Whether you worship God well or poorly, amazingly or, or like not at all, doesn't change God. God doesn't need our worship, just like I didn't need Harvey to build that T-Rex Lego set. I didn't need that. It didn't, it didn't change me as an individual. It didn't add any value to my life. It was just something that I did. I worship God because I need to. I helped Harvey with his Lego project because he needed the process. He needed to go through that. When I'm worshiping God, I, I, God's not benefiting. He's not getting anything out of it, but I am. I'm getting something out of it. I worship him. I need to worship God in the same way that my body needs my lungs to process air. I need the air that comes into my life. The same way I worship God in the same way I need what it brings to me. Worshiping God breathes life into my spirit. Listen, there are so many Christians, they're, they're spiritually dead because they're not worshiping God. You need to worship God. When? Well, pretty much always, as, as, as much as you need to breathe air. How often do you need to breathe air? Pretty much, what is it, you know, how many times a minute? I need somebody, somebody who knows that thing. How many? Six, 16? 16 breaths a minute. What if you cut it down to like eight? Or four? How about four? What's going to happen? Right? I mean, you're denying your body something it needs. And the longer it goes without that, what's going to happen? You eventually might die. Or pass out at the very least. Worship's the same thing. Your spirit needs to worship. It needs that expression toward God and toward God's people and towards the world so that your spirit can receive the life that only comes through worship. And the more life that I, that I experience through worship, the more of Jesus can be seen from my life. We talk about it. you need to be like Christ. How do you do it? Worship God. How? Well, just read the book. You know, if you need help, ask Randy. This is what God's looking for. He is looking for people to worship him. Not for him. He doesn't need it. He does it because you need it, and not just you, but everybody around you needs you to worship God. Because the more you worship God, the more they see Jesus, the more they see Jesus, the more likely they are to worship God. I'm going to close with this verse, John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. As I pray, ask God to open your heart to worship him more and more with every breath that you take, with everything you do, with every breath that you take. Let it be an act of worship to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for the gift of worship. And while we, we don't always think about the things that we do on a moment-by-moment basis as an act of worship. I pray that we would start to do that more, more frequently, that we, would, that we would see, Lord, that, that everything that we do can be an act of worship, right? We've, we've gone through this time where we sat and we, we heard the music and we sang the songs, and, but Lord, that we can also worship you as we're hearing your messenger speak your word. And so I pray, Lord, that we would start seeing everything. And as we prepare to end and we've taken this time to pray, I pray, Lord, that even in this time, as we're, as we're just, as I am praying, that your people's hearts would be lifted up to you in worship in these words. 
And I pray, Lord, as we prepare to leave this place, and we're going to take some time, we're just going to hang out together and fellowship and, and eat food. Lord, let that be an act of worship. Lord, that we do it so that we can draw closer to you, that we can be connected to your people, so that we can express our love for you to them and to others. And so we pray, Lord God, that you'd pour out your spirit upon your people. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here who, is, who has never made that connection between why they're here, you know, why, why, why am I in this earth? Why am I, why am I walking around? What, what purpose do I serve? Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'd impress upon their hearts so clearly right now that they exist to worship you. It's not about them. It's not about, it's not about others. It's, it's, about, it's about you. They were created to worship you. And until they do, until they start, until they, they make that connection, that they're, just, they're just, just living a life that is not whole, it's not complete. And so I pray, Lord, that even right now, in this moment, right this very moment, someone would sense the reality that they were created for, that, for the highest possible purpose, and that is to worship you. Also, impress upon their heart. There's only one way to do that. There's only one way to start doing that. You made a way, and that way was Jesus. That because of our nature that rejects you, that, that turns away from you, that hardens our heart toward you, that stops our ears from hearing you, that part of us needs to be dealt with. And it's dealt with, it's dealt with at the cross, at the cross of Christ. And so I pray if someone's here and they've not opened their heart to receive Christ as their Savior, recognize that he died on the cross for their sins, that they would make that choice today. They would repent of their sins. They'd receive Christ as their Savior. And they'd make a commitment right this moment to start to the best of their ability, not perfectly, but to the best of their ability, living a life of worship, of right worship, of true worship. So I pray, Lord, Touch their hearts right this very moment and save them. We praise you, Lord. We love you for all that you're doing. And we know, Lord God, that you're not finished with us and that every day is another opportunity to worship you. And we praise you for that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.